special thank you to Matthew this morning. One of the things about COVID is that uh, uh, we oftentimes get people uh, who are sick and call in late, and so Matthew had to jump in and pitch it for us this morning. So thank you, Matthew, for doing that and um, bringing us God's word. And at this point, uh, it is my great honor to be here to actually continue the series that we've been working through over the past many months, and that is uh, the series in the book of Acts. And today we come to Acts 5, and in, that, in this uh, uh, section of the book of Acts, uh, we find this context that we've been kind of working through, and that is that we have seen the beginning of the new church, uh, the New Testament church. This is not the beginning of the church in general. Uh, we believe that the church has existed all the way from the beginning of time. It is the community of people that the Lord has created, uh, that has, he has given his special love to. Um, but it, we, we see a renewal of that church. We see a revival of that church that happens with the coming of Jesus Christ. And especially uh, in the uh, outworking of the Holy Spirit in and through uh, his people uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts. And it's a really beautiful story. And it reminds us a lot of what we've been talking about through this series. And that is this idea of what does renewal look like in our lives? What does revival look like in our lives? And actually, how, we can, how can we get this renewal and revival in our lives? And we've been talking a lot about that as our community enters into this kind of new phase, this new stage with a new pastor coming out of COVID with a new building, lots of new things happening, right? This is a good time for us to think deeply about what it is for us to actually serve the Lord in this world. What does it look like for us to live out and embody the mission he has called us to? And that's exactly what we've been seeing and walking through as we've been going through the book of Acts. And as we've done that, we've seen this kind of internal and external growth despite uh, internal and external opposition to the gospel. Uh, anytime you see the gospel begin to expand and to grow, uh, you see opposition grow, come. Uh, this is true in the book of Acts, but it's also true in reality of life. This is almost always the way it works. Uh, but the Lord works in and through that to build his kingdom, to build his people up. And that's exactly what we've been following along. Last week, we saw this internal opposition that raised up with Ananias and Sapphira and how the Lord dealt with that and then advanced the gospel through that. And then this week, we're going to be looking at the external opposition that arises through the leaders uh, of the Jewish community uh, and how they reacted to the growth of God's people and the growth of the church during this time and how the Lord continues to work in and through that as well. And so let's, uh, before we dive into that and seek to learn from our Lord this morning, let's pray and ask him to be with us, to bless our time in his word. So let's do that now. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have spoken into our world, that uh, you have given us your words of life. And we pray, Father, that, that they would leak their way into our hearts and our minds this very morning that they would awaken us uh, to both our need for you and to your grace and your salvation, that you would transform us by your love and that you would knit us together as your people for your service in this world and motivate us by your love uh, to be willing to, to suffer and to sacrifice and to proclaim the good news of the gospel because we know that that is the only place that we can find life in this world. And Lord, through this, we pray that you would bring renewal and revival to our church and to our community and, Lord, that your name would be glorified in all of these things. We long for this, Lord, and we know that you can do it, so we ask that you would. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've had a little bit of the context, um, but a little bit more is that as we begin to unpack this passage, what we see here is that we're still in the midst of the first persecution that broke out against the church. This happened right before we get the story of Ananias and Sapphira last week, uh, and it's still going on at this point. 
And what we see is that uh, many signs and wonders are being done among God's people. Uh, the apostles are healing the sick, they're casting out demons, they're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. The gospel is spreading rapidly during this time. Uh, the whole city, we are told here, is filling with the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and more than ever before, believers, we are told, are being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. It's just a beautiful picture of how the church is exploding and growing, and the gospel is spreading uh, through Jerusalem like wildfire. Uh, and all this was a glorious experience for the people of God and for the early church. But it wasn't a glorious experience for the leaders of the Jewish community at the time. All this enraged the high priests, we are told here, and the Jewish leaders, and it filled them with jealousy. So they had the apostles arrested and actually thrown into prison. But in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord actually came and appeared to them in the prison. He released them and then immediately told them to go out and to speak the words of life, continue to speak the words of life. And so that's what they did. They went right back out to the courtyards. They began to proclaim the good news of the gospel again. And what this does is it leads to kind of a, kind of a comic relief experience within the scriptures. And, and if, if, you, if, you're, if you read the scriptures and all you ever do is you, teach, you kind of read them in a very serious way, you miss some really glorious things because there's a lot of humor in the scriptures. And this is one of those points. Like you, you kind of get this sense that like the high priest have arrested these guys. They've thrown them in prison. They send the guards to go get them in the morning. And there's this comic kind of situation where they're not there. They don't know what's going on. They start running around trying to figure out what happened. Somebody in the, you know, from somewhere tells them, oh, by the way, they're out proclaiming the gospel. And so they kind of run out to the, to the courtyards and they find them there. And the people are rejoicing around them. And they don't know what to do. And it's just kind of this, you know, uh, this kind of comic tragedy that's happening within the leadership of Jerusalem at the time. And it's pretty funny. It's like, you know, one of those uh, TV shows where, uh, you know, those old TV shows where you see like, you know, uh, Monty Python where they're running around with, you know, the, the music playing in the background. Doo -doo 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 -doo. And you kind of get the sense that that's what's happening here with these guards. Um, but the high priests are angered by this again. And they demand that the apostles are actually brought back before the council. And so the guards do that. But they're afraid that the people will stone them. So they don't force them, they just kind of guide them and, and encourage them, and they bring them back to the high priest. And what we do at this situation, what we find in this situation, is that they immediately begin to question them. And this is what we see here in verse 28. And they say to them, we strictly charged you to stop teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, here you are filling the city with his name. And at this point, one of the most famous passages or statements in the scripture uh, comes from the mouth of Peter, and he says this, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Now, that's an incredibly bold statement. He knows what the high priest can do to him. He knows that he, they could throw him in prison. He knows that they could execute him. This is an incredibly bold statement of him proclaiming where his confidence is, where his identity is, where his purpose is, and the question that comes out of this is how in the world can he have this much confidence and be this brave in the face of the, the suffering that they're experiencing? And that's what I want us to spend our time on this morning. And the first thing that I want to look at is this. They found their confidence, first of all, in the message that they were proclaiming. And the question is, what is this message? Well, what we find here in verses 29 through 31 is this. The message is that God that the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at the right hand as leader and as savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, that's the gospel in a nutshell, as Tim Keller would say. 
It's a very concise way of trying to understand exactly what the gospel is. That Jesus came into our world, that he lived, that he died for our sins so that we might receive forgiveness. And he was raised again for our justification, raised again for our salvation. This is the message that Jesus had given to his apostles to proclaim to uh, Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And it's the very same message that has been passed down to us to proclaim even today. In fact, that's exactly why we come together every Sunday morning. And this is exactly why this is what you're going to hear from me every time you come. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you as first importance. So why is this of first importance? It's because we are told here that it contains the very words of life. The very words of life. Now every day in our world, uh, each one of you is confronted with an ocean of worldviews. And every one of those worldviews tries to tell you certain things. They try to tell you that this is the reality of the narrative of the world that you live in. This is what the world is all about. It tries to tell you, um, it tries to claim that it can give you the keys to human flourishing or to meaning or to identity or to purpose in this world. It claims to give you the things that can make you happy, right? We all know that this is true. And we all run into literally hundreds of those every day as we're watching TV, as we're going to work, as we're interacting with our neighbors, as we're going to the grocery store, there are these tons of advertisement. These are tons of messages that we get all the time. And it's incredibly confusing, isn't it? Because many of those contradict each other. And they tell us different worldviews or different ways to find these things that we're desperately longing for in this world. And into the midst of this confusion, what we are told here in this passage in the scriptures as a whole is that Christianity breaks in and it makes an admittedly bold claim, an admittedly uh, incredible claim. And that is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That his worldview is the true story of reality and the world that we live in. And that his message is the only hope that any of us have for forgiveness and for salvation in this world. And again, that's a bold statement. Why in the world were the apostles so confident in that particular message. You know, one of the greatest defeater beliefs in our culture today is that, uh, and one of the most common objections to Christianity is that people often say that there are many good things in the Bible, right? Uh, we live in a culture that's kind of post-Christian, uh, but it's also a culture that likes spirituality. So they still like a lot of things that you see in the scriptures. They like the spiritual aspect of it. They like a lot of that. They just don't like the institutional part of it, right? They don't like the, you know, the rules and those kind of things. But there are a lot of things that people would say that they actually like and they think that are good. But oftentimes people go on to say that we can't uh, insist that the message that the scriptures actually bring to us is trustworthy or authoritative because it's historically unreliable. And I want to just take a moment and just kind of say that that is actually a claim that does not hold up if you actually take any time to look and see what the scriptures actually claim about the message that they're portraying. The author of the book of Luke and Acts that we've been listening to in this series, and Luke 1, 1 through 4 says uh, that he painstakingly had preserved historical facts. I myself have carefully investigated everything, he says, so that you may know with certainty of the things that you have been taught. Uh, there are 
multiple, the scriptures are filled, especially in the New Testament, multiple eyewitness accounts. Anytime you see anybody like say, uh, this guy, the son of this guy did this or said that, that's kind of like a, you know, a, a note in the scriptures to say, if you have a question about what he said, you can go talk to him. Because most of those guys were still alive at the time. And Luke wrote his account within 30 to 40 years after these events. And the records of the fact that many that saw Jesus and the stories that he told within the scriptures are actually alive and that they could go and ask them and see if this was true. And they could check the facts for themselves. Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, who wrote his letters only 15 or 20 years after the, the events of Jesus Christ, um, at one point says that there were 500 people that, that saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. If you don't believe me, you can go talk to them. You can see for yourself. You can get their eyewitness accounts for yourself. And there's no way he could have said something like this uh, if that wasn't true. And in Acts 26, Paul again uh, says to King Agrippa that these things were not done in a corner and makes it clear that this message was based on eyewitness accounts and public documents stating that the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection were real facts. Um, and then that is what leads Peter here in this passage in verse 32 to say that we were eyewitnesses to these things. We saw them ourselves. We were with him. We saw him die. We saw him raised. We heard the words of life that he passed to us. And all this shows uh, this incredible message, this incredible evidential reality that we can actually have confidence in the message of what the scriptures say. And if you uh, are a person that, that questions that, I would encourage you to take some time to actually lean into that. There's an old book, some of you have probably heard it, I'm dating myself again in saying this, but there's a guy named Lee Strombol. It was a famous uh, uh, reporter uh, who decided one day that he was going to disprove Christianity. So he spent several years digging into the evidence of Christianity, digging into the evidence of the resurrection and the death of Christ and his historicity of the claims of the gospel. And he became a Christian at the end. And, you know, and I know that's not a gotcha statement. There are actually many of those stories out there of people, when they actually take the time to lean into this and understand these things, that they actually come to understand that these things are true. And it's mostly when people don't take the time to that that the confusion is injected into these things. So I would encourage you, as a result of this, that there's a high degree of confidence in the message of the gospel, and that's exactly why the apostles are so confident in their message here. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to have a kind of a rationalistic, fact-based confidence. Those are good things. They're necessary things, but it's not enough. And it's not what, where we see this passage end here. Their confidence was rooted in facts, but it also was rooted in something much greater than that, and that is in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look here at verse 32, he Peter goes on to say, and we were witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In Acts 1, Jesus tells us, his disciples, that even though he's going to be leaving for a time, that he's actually going to send the Holy Spirit, and it's better for the Holy Spirit to come, because the Holy Spirit will testify to them of the goodness and the truth of the reality of who he is and what he has done. Um, and that he would be poured out upon them and awaken their hearts and minds so that they could know that these things are true. And Acts 2 says this very clearly. We saw this promise first fulfilled at Pentecost, uh, and it's still being fulfilled today. And this fills us with two different kinds of uh, confidence, I would argue. And the first is internal confidence. In Romans 8, we are told that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit, part of what the wonder of the gospel is, is the Holy Spirit actually comes into our hearts. It comes into our lives, and it actually bears witness with us 
that these things are true, that we are actually adopted, that we are actually forgiven, that we actually have hope in Jesus Christ. And it's a constant, he is a constant reminder to us of these great truths and actually knits us to the, into the gospel, and it's beautiful. But there's also an external confidence that comes along as well. The apostles knew that they weren't witnessing alone as they proclaimed the good news of the gospel, as they obeyed the Lord and what he called them to do in the world. God, the Holy Spirit, was witnessing with and through them, testifying to the truth of the gospel as they testified themselves. He was the one who was transforming hearts. He was the one who was convicting people of their sins. He was the one who was drawing people to the knowledge of what Jesus Christ had done and putting their faith in him. God is the one who is accomplishing his mission in this world. And that's really important to understand. That is a beautiful thing. That's actually a very important part of the gospel. We are not the ones who are doing and accomplishing the mission of God in this world. God is. It's by his power. It's by his strength. It's by his authority that his great mission in this world will be fulfilled. We're promised that. He does not need us to do any of that. He doesn't need us for anything, in fact. But the glory of the gospel is he invites us to participate in his great rescue mission in this world. And that is a glorious thing. And then he uses us and works through us to accomplish his mission. And that's part of what it means to be his family, to be part of his body, to be part of his church, is to cling on to this great gift, this great mission that he has given us in the world. In this, what we see here in our passage is that the apostles knew that it wasn't their job to save or to convert anybody. It was their job to be faithful to the Lord and be faithful witnesses to his truth and the truth that the Holy Spirit would be at work. They trusted in that. And this is the idea of sovereignty and responsibility. God is sovereign over all things. We believe that. But he also calls us to be responsible and to actually lean in and to live out and embody what he's called us to do. And as you do that, really beautiful and special things happen. He begins to work in and through us, and he begins to forward the wonder of his gospel, and the, the, his words of life begin to spread forth. And that is glorious. It's wonderful. And we should celebrate that in beautiful ways. This is a huge source of confidence for the apostles here in our passage, and it should be for us as well, even today, as we seek to live out and embody what the Lord has called us to be as his church. Yet the reality is, is this is not easy, is it? It's one thing to say that we have confidence in the gospel. It's one thing to say that we have confidence in God. It's very different, and it's much harder to actually embody those things in our lives, embody that confidence in our lives. Edith Schaefer, uh, in her book, The Tapestry, has a, a famous quote, and when she uh, recounts a conversation that she had with her husband, Francis Schaefer, who was a famous theologian and an apologist in the last century, uh, or the last part, of the middle part of this past century, and uh, in this, she says that, uh, that Francis, her husband, once said to her, Edith, I wonder what would happen to most churches in Christian work if we awaken tomorrow and everything concerning the reality and work of the Holy Spirit and everything concerning prayer were removed from the Bible. It says, I don't mean just ignored, but actually cut out, disappeared. I wonder how much difference it would make in the lives of most Christians. And what they concluded is, unfortunately, they did not believe that it would make that much of a difference to many Christians. Because we oftentimes do not lean into the reality of how the Holy Spirit has worked. Lean into our confidence in Him. And this is a great travesty. Because according to the Bible, when we cut the Holy Spirit out of our lives, something really terrible begins to happen. We start to believe that we must live the Christian life 
and face the trials and the struggles of our world, and there are many, we know that, right? Face these struggles through confidence in our own strength instead of the strength of God. We become self-dependent rather than God-dependent. We become self-confident rather than God-confident. And when this happens, we tend to respond of one or two different ways. First of all, we overcommit ourselves because we think that success is dependent upon us. We don't trust God or other people to get the job done. And as a result, we think that we have to take matters into our own hands. That is an aspect of not trusting, not having confidence in God or other people around us. And as a result, this eventually leads to burnout, right? I've experienced this in my life. It is a tendency of most pastors, I would say, uh, to just take on too many things and to trust in yourself when things uh, start going in ways that you don't want them to go or things don't happen exactly in the timing that you wanted to happen, to think that I need to just kind of buck up, pull myself up by my bootstraps and do the work. Right? And I, in that, I oftentimes forget that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I burn out in those moments. That's where burnout comes from. But there's another way that we respond to this as well. And that second way is that under this kind of pressure to root our strength and our confidence in ourselves, we undercommit ourselves because we think that success, again, is dependent upon us. And we don't trust God and we don't trust ourselves in this aspect. We're terrified that we will fail. We're terrified that we're not good enough. We're terrified that we're not equipped enough. We're terrified that we cannot do the things that need to be done. And therefore, what we do is that it leads us to start privatizing our faith. It leads us to stop participating in the body. It leads us to stop volunteering or serving. It leads us to stop sharing the message of Jesus Christ with others in our life because we're afraid. And as a result, a deep discouragement on both of these sides begins to set in. And the mission of God's church begins to idle. It doesn't go forward in the way that we're called to. And what we need to understand is that the church is the body of Christ. We have not just been saved as individuals in this world. We have been saved as a people, as a community. And in this, we are all given very beautiful and special gifts by God. We all have different gifts in different ways that God has given us. And he's actually created us to use these gifts, and they're meant to be used in harmony for the service of God and the advancement of his kingdom in this world. We are not called to do these things by ourselves. If you have uh, somebody that you want to share the gospel with, maybe you're really bad at talking about it. But maybe you have a friend who's really good at it. And maybe you're really good at making tacos. So you make tacos and you invite your friend that's good at talking about it and you invite your friend that's wanting to hear about the gospel together and the body of Christ is at work and you actually use your gifts together. That is what we're made for. And there's so many different examples of how that's supposed to work together. And if we avoid that on either side of those coins, either getting overly involved or under-involved, what we do is we short-circuit that process and we begin to idle in our lives. Craig Brown, I've been told many times, and I've actually heard him say it once, used to say all the time at the beginning of this church that everybody does something and nobody does everything. Everybody does something and nobody does everything. Rick actually reminded me of this this week. And it's a, it's a great way of talking about this. And it's a great way of us and how we are supposed to think about what it means to be a part of God's people. And we need to pray that God would begin to show us our gifts 
to be able to understand how he wants us to serve, where we can serve, and show us how we can actually share our faith in this world. We need to pray desperately for the Lord to begin to do that in our lives and show us avenues to be able to exercise those things. But most of all, we need to, get, we need to pray that God would show us how to have confidence in him and his Holy Spirit to teach us to trust in him, to teach us to find our strength in him, and to teach us to obey him in this world. And we're not talking about, you know, when I, whenever you use the obedience, the word obedience in our culture, people immediately kind of, you know, back off and get their back up because it's a word that we just don't like, right? We don't like the idea of it. We think it's over, you know, bearing. Um, but when the Bible talks about obedience, it talks about it in actually a really beautiful way. It doesn't talk about it in terms of obeying because of fear or guilt, but out of confidence that as we do so, the Holy Spirit will be at work bringing life. It is an act of trust. It is a stepping out and trusting the Lord that as we follow his calling, as we follow the things that he's called us to be, that he will actually work in and through us to accomplish his great mission in this world. And that is a beautiful thing in our lives, in the lives of our community, and in the lives of our neighbors as well. Now listen, I know that uh, this may sound like I'm just trying to give you a guilt trip this morning about how I can encourage you guys and figure out a way to get you guys to serve more in the church. And the truth is, we need you to serve more in the church. Hear me say that. We need more people to serve more in the church. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. I'm not saying that to guilt you into it. I'm saying it's because of what we're made for. And we need to understand that. But what I'm trying to do specifically is get all of us, and myself included, to honestly face the uncomfortable question that is being brought to us here in this passage. And that is, are we like the apostles putting our confidence in the Holy Spirit and obeying God rather than men? Or are we putting our confidence in ourselves and obeying men rather than God? That's a good question because if we want the renewal, we want the revival that we're, we're talking about, that we're longing for, we have to be able to answer this question and we have to be able to put our confidence in the right place. And if it is the second part that some of us are struggling with, and we're all struggling with this if we're honest, right? Me too. And the question is, how do we change this? And this brings us to the third thing, the final thing, that I believe that the apostles found confidence in in this passage. And that is that they found confidence in their Savior. If you look here at verse 31, Peter says that God exalted him, Jesus, at the right hand as leader and Savior. Now the word translated here as leader is actually a really fascinating word uh, in the Greek. Uh, it's the Greek word archagos, uh, and it's used uh, many times throughout the New Testament, but almost every time that it's used, it's translated in a different way. Um, sometimes it's translated as prince, sometimes it's translated as author, sometimes it's translated as leader, as we read in our passage this morning here in the ESV translation. And the reason for this translation variance that we see here is because it's actually a very rich word that's difficult to kind of encapsulate in the English language, and so we try to translate it in different ways in different situations to kind of get at what's going on there. But it's actually a very common word that's used in Greek literature. And in that context, it's almost always translated in exactly the same way. And that is hero. Hero. What is a hero? And Dick Kyes, uh, who is uh, an old-time Labrie worker, uh, wrote a book one time called True Heroism. And in that, he points out that there's a great deal of confusion in our culture around the idea of heroism or heroes. And the reason for this 
is that we oftentimes in our culture tie the concept of heroes to celebrity culture, right? Um, we have begun to believe that the celebrities in our culture are our heroes. The problem with this is that even though these people are very famous and the ones that we often see the most often in you know, our culture and media and whatnot, they oftentimes, or more often than not, live terribly broken and selfish lives, right? And as a result of this, it's led to a great deal of cynicism in how we think about the idea of, of heroes in our culture. Have you ever thought about why it is that most superhero movies over the last 10 years are, are very different than the, where they were when I grew up? They're much darker. They're much more cynical. They're much more, uh, uh, you know, uh, derogatory toward the heroes themselves. The heroes are broken. They're constantly making mistakes. And you get the rise of these kind of anti-hero movies, right? Because we're so cynical about the idea that anybody could be really good, really perfect in that way, could be a true hero, that we can't even make movies about it anymore. Because we don't believe that that could happen. We don't believe that it could be true. But this is not at all what the Bible means when it talks about the idea of hero. And it's not really what our culture believes either, when you really dig under the surface and get at it. David Foster Wallace, who's one of my favorite authors, uh, says this. He says, true hero heroism involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over again in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. That's what a hero is. But it's not only that. True heroes are, always, are also men and women of great character who stand up for truth and are willing to sacrifice their comfort and their safety and even their very own lives to protect the weak and the innocent and because they believe in something that's greater than themselves. Even just saying that or thinking about that this week made my heart long for that. And I bet it's making your heart long for that as well. St. Maximilian Kobe is this Catholic priest. I read a story about him this past week um, who was sent to Auschwitz in 1941 because he had been harboring or protecting Jews in his house. Uh, and actually, I think, in the basement of the church that he had in Germany. And so the, the Nazis caught him. They threw him into prison uh, at Auschwitz. And uh, during the course of his time there, after a few months that he had been there, uh, there was a man uh, who escaped. And in response to this, the Nazis decided that they were going to randomly select 10 people that they were going to starve to death in order to make an example so that nobody would try to escape again. And one of the men that they randomly selected was this man who had 10 children. And when uh, uh, St. Maximilian Kobe found out about this, uh, he, was he had incredible pity for this man, and so he substituted himself for him. And as the story goes, he led that group of uh, men and women who had been randomly selected in songs and in prayers for weeks until all of them died. Now that is an incredible act of heroism, isn't it? For someone to do something like that, to substitute themselves in something like that. And what we need to understand is that what Peter is saying here in our passage is that that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. The only difference is that when Jesus substituted himself for us, we weren't innocent. We weren't innocent. We deserved to die. Yet he still came. He still gave his life in the most amazing act of heroic love the world has ever known. 
And as a result, we have been given the gift of repentance and forgiveness of sins, we're told here. And the knowledge that because of his grace, we have been freed from our dark imprisonment, the self-confidence and self-dependence and guilt and shame and fear and brought into the light of what it means to be, to have lasting confidence in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our hero, who is our Savior, is what it says here. Hebrews 4 says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in their time of need. It's a beautiful passage that talks to this kind of confidence that we've been given in the gospel and that we can come freely now, not having to worry, not having to uh, pull ourselves up, not having to, to seek to clean ourselves up, but because we can't ever do that, but we come based on his grace. And his grace is the strongest foundation of confidence that we could ever have in this world. And it begs this question, who is the hero of your story? Who is the hero of your story this morning? Thought about that a lot this week, prayed about that a lot this week. Who is the hero of your story? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is our great hero. And he is the ultimate source of our confidence in this world. And what we need to understand is the apostles and the Holy Spirit are not witnessing in this passage to come some kind of abstract confidence or like calling us to kind of a, a new self-help program, right? They're calling us to a confidence that is rooted in Jesus Christ, the greatest hero that our world has ever known, who has come and has loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice everything so that we might have the words of life that he has brought to us. The life that he offers us is a gift of grace, and when we cling to this, when we begin to understand it, when we begin to lean into it and trust in it, what it does is it dismantles the defensiveness of our hearts the self-confidence that we have in ourselves, and it roots our hope squarely in his love and his care for us. And then it motivates us out of love to go and serve him, to give of our lives, to sacrifice, to miss watching Ted Lasso so that I can go and help out with the men's ministry stuff, to miss uh, going to that particular thing that I love, maybe uh, you know something at a brewery or something so that I could actually come and help set up for a ministry event that's going on. Those are not bad things in and of themselves, but why would we give up these things in a culture like ours today? The gospel calls us to something greater and it shows us something more wonderful and it transforms our heart in a more powerful way that actually leads us to be willing to do this and gives us the foundation to do that in a way that our culture has no way of doing. Our world has no way of doing. And that's why we see in verse 41 here that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can you imagine that? They were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to be able to suffer for the honor of his name. How can we live out and confidently fulfill our mission that God has called us to in this world to proclaim the message with joy in the midst of suffering? How can we have true renewal and revival that we've been talking about and longing for? Only the gospel can do this. Only the gospel can transform our hearts and give us the confidence we need in his message. Only the gospel can free us from the imprisonment and the lie of self-confidence and self-dependence that we hear in every aspect of our lives either in overcommitting ourselves or undercommitting ourselves, and lead us to a place of confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who is bringing this great story to its right conclusion. And only the gospel can dismantle our tendency toward defensiveness when we hear these things and lead us to root our trust and hope 
and our great hero, Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can give us the words of life that can transform our hearts, not just bend it or change it in some way, but actually transform it. And then knit us together as his people and drive us to serve him, to bring his kingdom to bear and actually serve one another to build up his church and his kingdom in this world. May we all be granted the grace and mercy in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. And may we have the knowledge of his salvation given to us the confidence to serve him this week as we continue to seek what it means to be renewed and revived in him as his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, um, it's not easy to have our sins revealed and uncovered and exposed. It's not easy to be shown, as I have been shown this week, how in so many different ways I put my confidence in myself or others rather than in you. And Father, I pray that your gospel uh, would be prevalent this morning, that your Holy Spirit would pour out upon us. Convict us, Lord, we pray, of our sins, of our lack of confidence in you, and drive us to your gospel. And through that, Lord, I pray that you would transform us by your grace so that you truly would renew us, that you truly would revive us, and then your Holy Spirit would spill out of this place like a great river into our city, and many, many people would come to know you and the words of life that you have given us by your blood and your sacrifice. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.